want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're looking at the last five verses of chapter 20 as we draw towards the end of this study of the book of Revelation. Just a couple more weeks and we will, we will come to its conclusion. I want to begin by sharing a story. Uh, this is a true story about John and Anne Darwin. They lived in a place called County Durham, England. Uh, John had been a school teacher for about 18 years when he had a career change. He, he became a prison officer, a prison guard. Um, he, was, uh, he and his wife lived in this, uh, this place, County Durham. They, they owned their own home and a few rental properties. Uh, he was a, an avid paddler. And on March 21st, 2002, John was uh, paddling his kayak out to sea. But John never returned. When he failed to show up at work later that day, a huge search, a large-scale search was launched, but it turned up nothing until the next day when wreckage of his kayak was found and Darwin was eventually presumed dead. Only he wasn't. Turns out that, that John and Anne, his wife, had been experiencing some significant financial difficulties that led them to concocting this plan to fake his death, and, uh, which would allow Anne to collect the life insurance money and help relieve this pressure. For some time, John actually lived next door in one of their rental properties, a, a studio suite, uh, right next door. And in time, the couple decided that they were going to try and find a place uh, overseas, abroad, where they could live. They took a trip to Cyprus. They took a trip to Panama. Panama ended up being the place where they purchased property and planned to live. Uh, this whole ruse was kept secret by Anne, not only from the public generally, but even from the couple's own adult sons. That is, until December of 2007. Panama changed some of their visa laws, and it became clear to John that that his, uh, his fake identity would not stand up to the scrutiny that it was going to go, uh, go under. And so he decided he would return to England and he would pretend that he had amnesia. Well, their whole story began to unravel very quickly. And before long, both he and Anne were charged with various accounts of fraud and other crimes. And in, uh, in July of 2008, they were both sentenced to more than six years in prison. For John and Anne, a day of reckoning came. A, a day came when the truth came out about what they had done, and they were called to account. They had to pay the price for the, the crimes that they had committed, not only, uh, not only in regards to uh, their crimes against society, crimes against those against whom they committed fraud, but even uh, Anne has written a book about the betrayal that she perpetrated on their on their sons and the damage that did to her relationship with her, her kids. This morning we come to a passage in the Revelation that speaks of a day of reckoning, the day of reckoning, a day uh, where we will all be called to account. We will stand before God and give account for what we have done. And before we turn to and look at the text, I want to remind you of a few things that we have uh, discovered as we've walked through the Revelation. 
We've been walking through the Revelation since March. In, in this book, the title literally is The Apocalypse, the, the Unveiling. In these pages, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. And what we have discovered is that there is more going on than, than we perceive with our physical eyes. Uh, this book makes use of imagery and symbols and numbers to communicate. It paints pictures. It gives us these amazing visions. But to what end? I have asserted over and over and over again that the revelation is not a crystal ball, that this is not a God giving us a play-by-play-by-play -play -play of history in advance so that we can look in these pages and figure out exactly how things will unfold moving forward, not in those specific ways. Rather, this is a discipleship manual. Uh, this is, Jesus gives these words to his disciple John while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. Write what you see and send it to the churches. That is, Jesus is communicating these things first to believers who live in the Roman province of Asia in a time in history when they are beginning to suffer and where there is a great time of suffering that will soon fall upon them. And Jesus wants to prepare them. He wants to warn them of what is coming. He wants to warn them of the grave dangers of compromising. And he wants to challenge them, encourage them to remain faithful to him, even in the face of all that lies ahead. Uh, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you know that I have referenced uh, a couple titles that some people use for the book of Revelation, specifically that arises out of these latter chapters of the book. One title is The Tale of Two Cities, that is, of the Great Babylon, that is Rome, and the New Jerusalem. Or, or another title is The Tale of Two Women. The harlot riding on the scarlet beast and the bride of Christ. Uh, those images come from these latter chapters. We are coming to, sorry, the central thrust of the last several chapters has been God's judgment upon Rome, upon all those who align themselves with Rome. We've watched as God, God sent seven angels have poured out seven bowls of wrath with which God's wrath is said to be complete. We have watched the destruction of, of the, the harlot riding upon the beast. We have listened to the threefold lament of the merchants of the earth and the kings of the earth and the merchant marine as they mourn over the fall of the great Babylon. Most recently, we have walked through the visions that John has provided for us of the last battle. The last battle that takes place in two parts. Two weeks ago, we saw the ultimate fighter, Jesus. Jesus mighty riding out of heaven on this white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. And then he is confronted by the beast from the sea and the false prophet and the kings of the earth in opposition, gathered to wage war against him. But the war is not fought. Jesus wins simply by showing up. Why? Because the battle was won at the cross. Then last week we saw the dragon, Satan, the adversary of God, the one who is filled with fury at, at Christ for his defeat and wages war against his descendants, that is, against the church. And this, the dragon gathers together the nations of the earth from the four corners, Mag, Gog and Magog, to make, wage war against Christ. But again, the war doesn't happen. Jesus shows up and it's simply over. And the dragon is thrown into the lake of fire. And the armies of the earth are consumed with fire from heaven. Between those two visions was a... Uh, was another vision 
aimed to encourage the people of God, aimed to encourage the church, the church who is suffering, the church who is being crushed. That vision of this thousand-year reign of the martyrs resurrected, reigning with Christ, reveals to them that there is this great reversal that is coming, this great reversal that has already happened because of the cross, that, that already Jesus is king, that already they have been resurrected, that already they reign with him, though it seems anything but in their experience at the moment. This morning we come to the last short section of this chapter, verses 11 to 15, uh, before our attention will turn to the second city, the tale of the second city, the tale of the second woman. If you have your Bibles, follow along as I read uh, verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This morning I want to ask four questions with you of these five verses as we walk through them. First, uh, what does John see first? What does John see first? Second question, who does John see next? Third question, according to what are the dead judged? And fourth, how should we respond? So what does John see first? Who does John see next according to what? Are the dead judged, and how should we respond? Question one, what does John see first? As our text opens, it opens in such a way as to snap us to attention. We read, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Uh, this is not the first time that we have seen this, but with this brief phrase, we are again thrust before God Almighty upon his throne, the throne that is above every other throne. We saw this throne first back in Revelation chapter 4. Remember after the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3, John saw suddenly, he saw a door in heaven and a voice saying, come up here. And John was caught up to that door and he gazed through the door. And what did he see? He saw a throne and one who sat upon it. What was it John saw? A throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. A throne that represents authority, that represents sovereignty. The throne that is above every other throne. Surrounding that throne were 24 other thrones with 24 elders with golden crowns who bowed and worshipped and four living creatures who bowed and gave glory to God who was on the throne that was above all thrones. Now John doesn't tell us who is sitting on the throne, not directly. Rather, he describes in chapter 4, he described who this one who was sitting on the throne. And we read this, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled his throne. How do you describe what is utterly beyond words? Uh, John seeks to engage our imaginations and reaches for the best language he knows. He speaks of precious stones, of jasper, ruby, emerald. He wants us to imagine. He wants us to, to imagine spectacular glory. To see, to, to imagine majestic, brilliant, brilliant beauty. In fact, as we read on, John writes this, From the throne came flashes of lightning, 
rumblings and peals of thunder. Imagine the brilliance of lightning. You've seen a lightning lightning flash in front of your eyes, incredibly bright. You've felt the rumble of thunder so that you, you feel it on your insides. That is what John sees when he looks upon the one who sits upon the throne. That that is what John attempts to describe here. John looks and he sees a great white throne. The great white throne. Great as in it's it's mega, it's huge, it's, it's, it's colossal in size. It is brilliant and white, glorious, pure, holy, overwhelming. In fact, this vision here in chapter 20, John looks and sees a great white throne. And what do we read? We read, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So incredibly overwhelming that that creation runs. Creation flees the presence of God Almighty. Who can stand in the presence of God? Who can stand in the presence of such holiness, such majesty? Earth and heaven flee, polluted as they are by human sin and the powers of evil. I read this verse in Revelation 20 and I cannot help but think of Isaiah's vision. Isaiah 6 where we read this. In the year of King Uzziah, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes seen the King, the Lord Almighty. John looks and he sees a great one white throne and the one who sits upon it and, and the heavens and the earth flee from the presence of God. I love what Annie Dillard writes in challenging the casualness with which so many of us approach God. She writes this, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us into our pews. John looks and he sees a great white throne and the one who's sitting upon it. And heaven and earth flee. Question two, who does John see next? We read on and we, here's what John says. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, we have some figuring out to do at this point. The the text says that that John saw the dead, but but who exactly does the dead include? Now, now before I give you what I think is actually a fairly obvious, most obvious answer to this, let's look at a few details in the text. Uh, First, John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Great and small is John's way of saying this includes everyone. 
There is no one so great so that they will somehow avoid this reckoning. There's no VIP passes so that you can kind of skip out of this. This includes the great, and it also includes the, the small. That is, there is no one who is so unimportant, so insignificant, that they will be overlooked. Both great and small are included. This is John's way of saying everybody. Second note, verse 13, we'll read, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now, Hades in the ancient world was understood to be the place, the abode of the dead. Uh, generally, both the wicked and the righteous, sort of this intermediate place where you went when you were dead. If you read through the Old Testament, there certainly is not some clear theology of heaven and hell that, that becomes increasingly clear through the New Testament. So there was this Hades, this, this place of the dead, this, this abode of the dead. In the breaking of the seals, if you remember back in Revelation 6, the fourth rider was death and Hades. Here we encounter death and Hades again, and they give up their dead. The Death gives up the dead. Hades gives up the dead. The fact that the sea is also mentioned simply gets at the, at the fact that in the ancient world, sometimes people would wonder, well, what about those who are lost at sea? What about those who aren't buried where we, we, there's no body? And so here it's just really clear. Death gives up the dead in it. Hades gives up the dead. Even the sea will give up the dead. So again, this is about everybody. This includes everyone. There will be no one who misses this moment. The point emphasizes the universal scope of who the dead includes. Now, there are two questions we may, be, we may feel led to ask at this point. First, uh, what about those who remain alive when this happens? And I would suggest that that is to miss the point of the drama of the revelation. If we are looking back over these chapters and go, okay, what exactly is happening? Who's alive? Who's dead? Like, that, that's to miss the point. I've argued that this is not a chronological play-by-play. -play. At this point in the narrative, as John looks and he sees a great white throne, and he sees before the throne the dead, the dead includes everybody, great and small, those who are buried, those who are lost at sea, this includes everyone. Second, some legitimately will ask the question whether the dead includes Christian believers, those who trusted Jesus. And though that's not explicitly answered, I would suggest that the most natural reading of this text would lead us to conclude that everyone means everyone. It includes all of, all us, of us, both believers and non-believers. That interpretation here at this point would accommodate well what the Apostle Paul writes in places like 2 Corinthians 5.10, where he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I would contend that the point being made here is that John looks and he sees all of humanity from throughout history. This is about the universal scope of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 reads, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. John looks and he sees before the throne the dead. He sees all of humanity standing before the one who sits upon the throne above every other throne. Question three, according to what are the dead judged? Now, if I'm correct to this point in our interpretation, what we are seeing here is all of humanity, throughout all of human history, everyone standing before God, the Almighty Holy One, and His throne. 
standing there to give account, to be judged for life. This is made explicitly within our text. We read in verse 12, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. But even before that, our text, before that, our text mentions that books were opened, and, and that, that is a dead giveaway of, of what is going on, that this is, in fact, judgment. That, that language of books opened is a reference to a passage in Daniel where we read this, a passage that presents a vision of a great judgment scene. As I looked, Daniel writes, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming, fl flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This language of books being opened is language that speaks to what is happening here. That this is a court scene, if you will. This is about judgment. All of humanity stands before the great white throne of God for judgment. And upon what will that judgment be made? Our text says, according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Daryl Johnson writes this, John here is working with the long-held idea that our deeds are recorded in heaven's ledger books. Everything is there. Nothing is forgotten. The court has all the evidence it needs. It's all there. Public deeds, private deeds. Public attitudes, private attitudes. In Luke 12, we read these words on Jesus' lips. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. As we hear this, this may be raising an alarming question in your minds. Is this teaching works righteousness? Is this teaching that we are saved based on our performance for God? That the verdict God will pronounce over each one of us is grounded in my own life and what I have done and failed to do? Because that's kind of what it sounds like, isn't it? That, that we will be judged according to what they have done in the books is what we read in our text. In response to that question, I want to vocalize a resounding no. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot merit forgiveness. And that is not what is being taught here. However, what, what is being taught is, what our, is, is that our deeds matter, that our lives say something. Here's how Johnson puts it. It is telling us that deeds are more serious than we in the 20th century have thought. Deeds reveal values. Deeds reveal character. Deeds reveal our true allegiance. And deeds reveal what we really believe. There are some in our world, there are some in the church today, who believe that you can say a prayer, the sinner's prayer, incidentally, something that we don't find referenced in Scripture. We can say these right words, that we cross a line, and then we're good. And that we can live as Lord of our own life, that we can do what we want, that we can continue living persistently in sin, willfully, unrepentantly, and that we're okay because we said a prayer. We said these words. This here in Revelation would challenge that thinking. Uh, 
Yes, we are saved by faith in Christ apart from works. But as James in his epistle declares, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Scripture says even demons believe. This is not simply about mental assent, saying a prayer, and then saying, now I'll live however I want. No, this is saying that deeds matter. Robert Mounts says this, the issue is not salvation by works, but works as the irrefutable evidence of a person's actual relationship with God. Salvation is by faith, but faith is inevitably revealed by the works it produces. Paul writes these challenging words in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless... Of course, you fail the test. We are not saved by our deeds. We are not saved by our performance for God. But we encounter in this text and throughout the scriptures the assertion that our lives will reflect a relationship with Jesus. This is not speaking about sinless perfection. We will fail. We will sin. We will stumble and scrape our spiritual knees, brothers and sisters. That's not what it's talking about. But our lives will reflect a relationship with Christ. If I were to ask you, what comes to mind when I say the word righteous or righteousness? Our Soma group right now is, has begun reading Tim, Timothy Keller's book, Generous Justice, and we had this discussion on Thursday. When we think of righteousness, we often think in terms of personal morality, do we not? You know, that, that I'm not cheating, that I'm not lying, that I'm not sleeping around, I'm, I'm being righteous. But righteousness, biblically speaking, is far broader than that, far richer, I would suggest. Righteousness is to be rightly related. The right relatedness of all things is a state of righteousness. What, what God desires is that we would be rightly related to Him and rightly related to one another and rightly related to the creation. And so to speak of being righteous does not mean sinless perfection, but it means that when I sin, I run to Christ and repent. That, that when I sin, my heart is filled with sorrow because it, it grieves God. That, that I seek Him. That, that I recognize and I, I continually declare, Jesus, You are my only hope. That we know that our ultimate joy and our ultimate hope is only in God. That is to be rightly related to God. So this is not talking about salvation by works that somehow we perform. And based on that, We'll be okay. No, this is about being rightly related with God and the fact that our lives will reflect a real relationship with God. Let me read this because this is clear even in our text. Verse 12, we read this. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Did you catch that? There is another book. Yes, there are the books that record all that we have done and failed to do, but there is another book, the book of life. There are books that contain the record of our, our, our failure, our sin, our rebellion, all that we've done, and there is this other book, the book of life. And, and here's what we need to grasp, what is true for every single person who has put their faith in Jesus. That for every one of us who has trusted Christ, that every one of us who has looked to Jesus and declared, Jesus, you are my only hope, when the first book... The book that, that contains our deeds, when that book is opened up, guess what will be seen? On page after page after page, we'll see red 
lots of red. All that you will be able to see is, is red marks that have crossed off all of your sin, all of my sin, bloodstains. That, that book will be covered with bloodstains, blood that flowed from Christ, blood shed by Christ when he died on the cross to pay for our sin, that, that our sins have been washed away, that we have been purified and made holy and pardoned and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. For all whose names are written in the book of life, the other book will be full of bloodstains from Christ. Paul declares, God made him who had no sin. God made him who had no sin, the perfect lamb. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That is, Jesus on the cross bore on his body our sin, my sin, your sin. And he suffered the penalty that we deserve. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through faith in Christ, we are clothed with his perfection. We, we receive his record. And so that book that, that records all that we've done is full of bloodstains and Jesus' performance. So... In Christ, we can stand. In Christ, we can stand not, not on the basis of our own works, our own deeds, but on the basis of Christ, on the basis of his death and his deeds. At this point, we come to the final verse of our text, and there is something marvelous here, and there is something absolutely heartbreaking here. Over the last two weeks, we have witnessed the final battle unfold in two parts. In the first part of the final battle, we, we saw that Jesus defeated the beast from the sea and the false prophet, that is the beast from the earth, and the kings of the earth who have waged war against God's people. And what happened? Jesus threw them into the lake of fire. Last week, we looked at the, the final battle, part two, and there Jesus is confronted by the nations and by Satan, the dragon, and Jesus consigns the dragon to the lake of fire. Here, on this week, as we come to this verse, we read, that here death also is defeated in Hades, and death and Hades are thrown into the fire. You see, that is marvelous because when resurrection happens, death has lost its job. Death is put out of business. Death is discarded. It's over for death. And Hades, there's no need for this place of the dead. And so death and Hades are discarded. This is a marvelous hope. We, we know as human beings, intuitively we feel this, that, that death is an enemy, just as Scripture declares, that when we face our own death or the, face the death of a loved one, we, we feel the wrongness of death, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this announcement that not only the beast from the sea and the false prophet and the dragon are thrown in the lake of fire, but so too is death and Hades. God is cleaning house. But it's at this point that we also encounter something in our text that is utterly heartbreaking. In verse 15, we read this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All who reject Christ, all who refuse to repent and worship the Lamb, to use the language of the revelation, all who worship the beast and bear the mark of the beast will also be thrown into the lake of fire that was prepared for the dragon 
and the beasts for death and Hades. This is not God's desire. In Ezekiel, we read these words, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God's desire is not that His creatures would end up in the lake of fire. But for those who do not turn, those who do not repent, those who persist in the rejection of Christ, the Lamb who was slain. That is the end. That is the end that waits. And so we come to our fourth and final question. How should we respond? What is Jesus saying to you and to me this morning? And I want to speak first to those who are here, those who are listening online, who remain apart from Christ. I've served as a pastor for over two decades, and I cannot count the times that I have sat with people who have said to me, but I'm a good person. I hear that over and over and over again who people, from people who do not profess faith in Christ. They think, well, if there is a God, and if it comes to that, I'm a good person. And they come to that based on, on one of two ways of thinking. Uh, perhaps on the one that belief is rooted in the fact that, that God will judge on a curve that, that compared to so many other people, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm better than, you know, somehow Hitler always finds his way into these arguments. I'm better than so many other people, I'm pretty good, God will accept me. Or on the other hand, they contend that, that well, you know, the good that I've done outweighs the bad, and so at the end of the day, if there's a scale, hey, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I just want to say to those of you here who do not know Christ, who will remain apart from Him, that the Scripture says that apart from Christ, all are lost. That there is none that is righteous. God does not judge us on a curve. He does not balance our good against our bad to see which outweighs what. No, He says, be holy because I am holy. And there is no hope for anyone apart from Jesus. Daryl Johnson writes these words. We are all going to die. And each of us is going to have to give an accounting for our lives. On that day, there are two options. The first option is to take our stand on the basis of what we have done with our lives. The second option is to take our stand on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done with His life. Daryl writes, I shall exercise option two. I find no hope in option one. Listen, if you, if you have never repented and believed, I urge you, I implore you, turn to Christ and receive His gift of life. Turn to Christ. The Bible says that apart from Christ, there is no one who is saved apart from Christ. He is the only way. And He loves you. He gave His life for you. He's, even now, He's inviting you throughout the revelation. We've seen over and over and over again this, this invitation to repent, and we see the stubbornness of humanity refusing to repent. I pray that that will not be you, that you will humble yourself before Christ and believe in Him and receive His life. 
Secondly, brothers and sisters, I want to speak to those of you who are in Christ. Two things. First here, even in the midst of tears, we see the glorious good news of our redemption. We see again that that Christ has paid the price for us. That that through faith in Him, He willingly, joyfully suffered what we deserved. And that He clothes us with His perfection. That through faith in Him, we stand before God. We stand before that great white throne. And all of our sin has been covered by His blood. That the book is full of red. Where previously it listed all my sins, all my failures, all of yours. And so there is reason for great joy that we would live with incredible hope and joy in the face of whatever may come because our names have been written in the, in the book of life. Do you remember in Luke's Gospel, Jesus sent out the 72 and they went out and, and they came back to Jesus to report all that had happened and they're completely excited and pumped and, and, and they, they say, hey, Jesus, even the demons submitted to us in your name and Jesus said to them, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we've been redeemed. In Christ we are secure. In Christ we are loved and forgiven and holy and we have, we have hope and we have reason for joy. So let us be people characterized by that joy. And yet there is a tension here because secondly, we cannot read these verses, we cannot study this text without our hearts breaking. All around us are those who are lost, who have no hope, who stand under God's judgment apart from Christ. While reflecting on the lostness of his fellow Jews, Paul in Romans 9 says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Do our hearts break for the lost? Do we cry out for their salvation? Do we feel this great sorrow and unceasing anguish? As we look around us and see so many who have rejected the love and grace of Christ. I don't know, brothers and sisters, how we hold together the joy that is ours in this great sorrow and anguish. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. Blessed are those who mourn over the lostness of the world. For they will be comforted. They will be comforted. Somehow as we live with that tension, joy in our own salvation, yet sorrow and unceasing anguish over the lostness of those around us, God promises us comfort. I don't know how that works, but I believe His promise. And so we need to let these truths sink deeply into our hearts. That we would be women and men filled with joy in what Christ has done for us and His love and His grace. And we would be women and men whose hearts would break for the lost. The Bible tells us that there will be a day of reckoning. Just as John and Anne that day came five years after they attempted this fraud, they were called to account. The Bible says that we will all be called to account, that one day we will stand where John sees us, before the great white throne, and the one who sits upon it, who is holy and pure, 
The, the one before whom creation flees. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can stand there with confidence because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done. And I pray, I pray that we will pour out our lives now. Not with distractions, but that we will pour out our lives proclaiming the hope that is found in Christ in word and in deed. That we would, we would say, Jesus, use us to make you known. Use our lives. Use this church. May we live faithfully as those whom you have redeemed, overflowing with joy. And may we live faithfully as men and women who weep over the lost and seek to point others to you, Jesus. Have your way in us. Use us for your glory and your purposes. Amen.